and welcome to 15 Minute Futures, the podcast that explores the future in bite size, but with a Kiwi twist. It's great to have you with us. Today we'll be looking at the burgeoning new world of futures thinking. We're delighted to have on the show international foresight expert, Professor Sohail Inayatullah. He is the first UNESCO Chair in Future Studies, holder of positions at two Australian universities and in Taiwan, and co-editor of the Journal of Future Studies. I feel tired just saying all of these. Um, he is also famous for pioneering causal layered analysis, a futures technique which uses metaphors and stories to enable deep and lasting change. So thanks so much for joining us today, Professor, and welcome to the show. Pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks so much. So I might kick off. Um, you're currently Chair in Future Studies at UNESCO and USIM. What does that role actually entail? I guess uh, UNESCO has a whole range of chairs, and the role of the chair is to spread the discipline in a way. So, Sahail, thinking about some recent examples of futures thinking uh, and the best and worst examples that, you, that might come to mind, uh, can you relate any stories for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I like moments of authenticity. So I had a large, very progressive Catholic group in Australia, and we had 50 principals and about 10, 15 students. And they're very impressive, really trying to transform Catholic education, find a voice for young people. And so it's going well. And then what I try to do when I then ask the students, give us your vision of 2030. And so, but make a skit out of it so we really remember it. Don't just read from your, you know, uh, don't just read from the board. And so they imagine the Tinder of education. (laughs) So swipe left, teacher's gone. (laughs) Swipe right, we keep them for the semester. Swipe left, principal's gone. Gone. Swipe right, we keep the principal for the semester. Wow. Uh, and how the teachers feel about that? <laughs> well, this was, and their metaphor was powerful. They said we're in a situation where they, they believe education is every every size, you know, one size fits all, and they would like to change that to the to tailor made. And they want more flexibility, the ability to design curriculum, take courses from anywhere in the world. So it's, it's quite impressive. It's a great vision. Mm. And so on the day one, the principals all clapped. You know, this is fantastic. We have the best and brightest here. And I felt the same way. On day two, there was the fight back. Someone said, wait a second. Isn't this more and more neoliberalism? I don't fit your market needs, so you're throwing me out. Mm. And that's, that's a fair comment. Or two, wait a second. I've been a principal for 40, 50 years. I just got swiped left. How fair is that? And so this became a very, I wouldn't say tense, but it became an authentic debate about, well, we need to adapt to this flexible peer-to-peer digital world. At the same time, what part of our past do we keep? So kind of the conclusion was, okay, going five days a week to school is madness. Having teenagers showing up at 7.30, 8.30 in the morning, we know is madness. It's bad for congestion, bad for climate change, bad for learning. But can we imagine a system where three days a week, they're home doing digital learning, holograms, et cetera. But two days, we have social hubs where we're learning sports, we're learning emotional intelligence, and we're finding places for, in their view, you know, spiritual intelligence, for prayer, for connection, for the transcendent. So this became, to me, a way forward. There's connectivity to spirit. There's social hubs, connectivity to each other physically. And, of course, digital face-to-face, peer-to-peer learning. So I found that kind of resolution of these two different visions, uh, a smart way forward. 
That's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And, and I guess there's a, a big question that pops out of it for me, which is, I mean, I've, we work quite a lot, both Rob and I, with different organizations. And, and often you find this kind of um, process that you're talking about where people get the original concepts and they like it, but then they have to put them in practice and suddenly you see an immune response. Yeah. Uh, and some of that is kind of based around fear or around discomfort with something new. Um, and often, you know, if we're putting environmental scan material out there and saying, hey, the world's going to be different or you could create a different world, people aren't always comfortable with that. So how do you work through kind of the emotional response that people have uh, through that process to, to kind of create collective comfort? Well, one is, so a lot of my work is structured methodology. So we might ask them, what's your preferred future? They say far more flexible learning journey. Then we say, what do you disown there? So disown is what I can't see, the opposite, the contradiction. So the disowning in this process, well, hundreds of years of the factory, the factory model has survived because it actually leads to outputs. It works in some ways. So then we say, what does the factory model look like in 2030? Then we say, how do we integrate it? So in this way, the, what we've pushed away comes back through integrated model. And then we ask the fourth question, what's the outlier? What's the disruption of the disruption? And now we have a structured way to bring out alternatives. But sometimes it's, it's, it's very difficult. I've been working a lot in the area of the new meat, mm. in vitro meat, plant-based revolution. Mm. And this started about 14 years ago when PETA first said there's a million dollars for a new meat that tastes delicious. And Dutch government gave in an offer 10 million. And finally, the first new burger was 325,000 US dollars. And now I've watched it from a crazy idea to... Uh, Gates and Branson investing to Beyond Meat has an IPO. Now Memphis Meat is going to have an IPO soon. Now watching the reaction to traditional groups has been intense to say the least. I had one group, I said, okay, given the possibility of this emergence, this is six, five, five years ago, I think. I said, what's your response? It's, it's easy, kill the vegans. <laughs> and I said, okay, that's scenario one. Okay. Can we now develop an alternative scenario where we're proactive? What scenario two? This will kill the scientists. Yeah. <laughs> and then scenario three was, you know, basically kill the early adopters. <laughs> Is there a non-murder-based scenario here? <laughs> One would hope, yeah. Now, of course, they were being a bit playful, but at the same time, it was very clear as farming communities, we already feel in threat in terms of most people want to move to the city, global urbanization, farming communities aren't respected. So we're already under threat. And now the information in the S-curve you're presenting to us is even more challenging. We haven't even caught up to urbanization. And now you want to say it's the end of farming as we know it. So my hope in those situations is to move into a situation where they can say, okay, given this, do we go organic niche meat? Or do we actually invest in the new meat? And, uh, you know, one way to ask ourselves is what today, what today is an asset that brings in great wealth, but very quickly can be a stranded asset? How do we make that transition? So good foresight work is to, when people go to fear, to say, what are the alternatives and move towards something beyond the stranded asset to create new value? Sahail, I know you've been doing some recent thinking and work around uh, metaphors and mantras. Just thinking about a, 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 how those approaches could be applied in our context? Well, the times I've worked in New Zealand, in terms of Maori groups, they found the metaphor 
quickly intelligible. So sometimes when I have MBAs, they might say, well, look, we're good at systems thinking, we're good at strategy. We can come up with the quantitative data that supports an alternative future. Uh, and they find it difficult to get to metaphor, but generally I find groups that have lived in story are more aware of their own stories they find easier. Going the next step, every person I know has a metaphorical storytelling ability. Mm. Uh, so that's what I try to shift to. I know I was in one organization in Italy, a large food organization. When I asked them what their metaphor was in terms of we look at the future of food safety, future protein, and they said, well, we're an old crippled elephant. <laughs> And then I said, can you add more to that? They said, no, we're also blind. And then, you know, that's kind of, I thought, well, well, you know, then doing foresight work is a waste of time. If our core story is, you know, really there's not much we can do. So I said, oh, there's some other metaphors. And one of the senior scientists said, you have the metaphor wrong. I said, oh, thank God we have something else emerging. Actually, he said, the new metaphor is the elephant is dead. We're just too busy to notice. <laughs> we know what happens to them. <laughs> So this is when organizations, given the rate of change, when they can't adapt, they just give more things to do instead of actually dealing with the transition needed. So as we work through this, the better metaphor that came back was the octopus. Uh -huh. Intelligence is everywhere in many areas, many fields, and we need to be quick, need to be swift. We need a new story that will get us to where we want to go. So the narrative shift really is helpful for individuals and organizations now we have a new story we tell ourselves strategy then comes from the story because the story tells us who we are as opposed to here's what we need to do which is one more things to do list thanks professor can you give me an example or some context around a personal metaphor and how the futures journey could apply to the individual remember one ceo he said his tension was he said the world he grew up with he's really effective in he said now when he enters a room he no longer knows what's going on he said the level of diversity the level of technological change he's uncomfortable in novel situations so i said okay so tell me at the metaphor level what does that mean he goes well i was a clay court player and i win in the clay court so he's a ceo so he does well in that world now he never knows he never knows what court he's in so i said so then it became well so then his new metaphor is the person who can play on multiple courts. He can play on clay and grass. Mm. And so then he drew that. Here's what it looks like. And I said, then what do you need to create that story? He says, well, I need to learn new skills in this new world. Wow. My old skill set was brilliant, but it's no longer useful. And I said, okay, now let's go 10 years from now. What's the best metaphor? He goes, actually, I became a CEO not for the normal reasons. It was for the love of the game. I love the game. So his metaphor is keep the rally going. So this is about being mindful, being present, being emotionally intelligent. So it's really connecting, keep the rally going. And keep the rally going because that reminds him when he was young, the excitement of doing something good in this world. So his final, I said, okay, so what does that mean in terms of strategy now? He goes, well, in 10 years, I want to be a life coach. I want to give back to, the, to my, my child self. So this became now an intergenerational story and the metaphor linked past, present, and future. And did it, in this example, I'm, I just want to know, did it, did it result in him uh, being able to do things differently? Did you see the actual change happen as a result? In this case, I've not followed up. In most cases, I do follow up. Right. And then I asked, okay, now it's three, four years later, but most people say it actually worked. Now, what happens is there's a excitement. The new story starts to work. 
but we all have a self that wants the Velcro of the past, mm. right? So the other self, let's go back to what wasn't working. And then there's actually, you know, it's going back to what's working. So it's the story has to link to system. So material conditions have to reinforce narrative and then it leads to transformation. So he actually has to take that course on new skills. It can't be just a story. He has to do the work. Fantastic. It's really um, exciting, the work that you're talking about. And it, it sounds like it's got the potential to really unlock huge amounts of energy and vision and enthusiasm for the future. You know, you've worked across all kinds of countries with all kinds of different people. Are you sort of optimistic or, or at the end of the day, do you think any organization, any country can take hold of their future using these kinds of um, approaches? Again, I know, I mean, I'm kind of very much evidence-based person. So there's one study that looked at Velcro thinkers and Teflon thinkers. The Velcro approach, a trauma happened. There was some authentic pain, and we acknowledge that. But in Velcro, you, I hold on to the pain. I have a mental loop that keeps on talking about the pain, and I understand that. So we have people, communities, there's pain everywhere. The Teflon is, yes, there's pain. Let me focus on where I wish to go the next 10 years and move there. Mm -hmm. And the research I've seen, the Teflon approach leads to better health outcomes. So whether I'm, I don't really frame myself as optimistic or pessimistic. I think what's going to work in creating a different future. And clearly the ability to, to feel one has agency and the future is bright, is more productive than the world sucks and there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Makes sense to us. Indeed, that's a great observation. And it's really exciting to, to think that our story can help pave the way towards a better tomorrow. A huge thanks to you, Professor, for both your generous insights and coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Uh, and that ticking sound means uh, our 15 minutes are nearly up. Many thanks to our sponsors, to Springload, creators of people-driven digital experiences, and Anticipate, the people who help you look ahead, plan ahead, and get ahead. Thanks for listening. <laughs>